0: Welcome to this BTSM podcast. I'm Babette Plain, Deputy Editor of the BTSM. I would like to introduce you to Ross Tucker, Exercise Physiologist and High Performance Sports Consultant. He's currently employed by the University of Cape Town and the Sports Science Institute of South Africa. He has an enormously popular website, www.sportscientist.com, a hugely popular Facebook page with 15,000 likes and 40,000 Twitter followers. Welcome, Ross.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, Um, what I would like to talk to you about, you have run 10K and half marathon and you play tennis as well. What is it with talent? I've heard something about the 10,000 hour myth. Can you explain to our audience?
1: Well, the fact that I do them is probably how I know talent exists because I didn't have any myself. So I just do them for fun purposes. And then you look at these, in the case of distance running, you look at these long distance athletes from Kenya and East Africa, Ethiopia. Um, you could do the same exercise in any other sport for, for many different countries where you have these pockets of excellence. And So then sure enough, there's this debate about whether success in sport is a function of talent or training. And it gets polarized, which is something that I it happens in many areas, but this is one of the most common ones in sports science, where all of a sudden it becomes one or the other, and you get this A versus B. And it was a few years ago that a, a number of popular books were written where the 10,000 hour concept gained popularity. The, the actual number came from a research study by a guy called Anders Ericsson in the ni- 1990s, where he had found that expert violinists took about 10,000 hours of training before they entered music school. And the, the key determinant of the great violinists, those who would go on to become professional players, compared to those who would go on to become teachers or just a uh, merely good violinists was the number of hours of practice, and 10,000 was the magic number. Um, That was a study that then owed its popularity to the books like Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, uh, Matthew Syed's Bounce, because they really popularized the idea that if you did 10,000 hours, you would become an expert, and to the point where there were statements in those two books saying that you would not find exceptions. You would never find someone who did 10,000 hours and didn't succeed, and nor would you find someone who didn't do 10,000 hours and succeeded, and that's clearly incorrect. I mean there are anyone who's got children, parents, anyone who's ever coached sport, anyone who's ever looked at sport and understands the players, you will know immediately that some players succeed on less time than others. And that has implications and I, I started to discover those because I did a little bit of work for the South African Rugby Sevens team and we were going around the world on this tour and meeting with people who were involved in talent identification and so forth. And there was this pervasive attitude that you had to do 10,000 hours. And and the reality is that that means, it has a number of knock-on effects. It means that that you must force yourself to specialize early. And there's a lot of scientific evidence that that actually might be detrimental. Because of course, how are you gonna get 10,000 hours in 10 years? You're gonna do three hours a day for 10 years. And that means you have to start when you're 11 or 12 and you have to train like a professional athlete. And there was so much research suggesting that it wasn't the case. And so I, I thought that that would be something certainly worth tackling. And so there were a couple of papers written, um, both of which were published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, really just trying to address the topic and say, let's let's stop putting it up as an A versus B, you versus me, one or the other. This polarization is just foolish. It's clearly a combination of the two. And that for a scientist, we have to make that case.
0: Okay. And then to, on that note... in in tennis you see that if a player is born in January that's actually an advantage compared to a player who is born in December like when they play tournaments um, and they're 14 years old or they're 12 years old so what you what you stated is that often that maturity is mistaken for ability.
1: Right so that's the relative age effect which also was something known in scientific circles for quite a long time having been identified in a number of sports. You've mentioned tennis. There was uh, European football or, or soccer to some listeners. Uh, Canadian ice hockey was a big one. And so it was fairly well known that there was an over-representation of children born in the first few months of the year. And even if the age cut-off date was, for example, September, then all the dominant players would be September, October, November. So there was quite clearly an effect there. And the the reason it was put forward, as you have mentioned, is because... When you're 10 or 11 years old and you are, in theory, a year older than your peers because you were born in January, they are born in December, that year is worth a lot to you in terms of your decision making, your maturity, your cognitive processes, your physical abilities, speed, power, strength, etc. And so coaches can't tell the difference between maturity and, um, uh, and, and actual ability when it's confounded by this relative age effect. So, so that, was, that was another thing that Malcolm Gladwell and, and Syed and so forth put, for, put forward. What's really interesting to me about that is that when you extend it to adulthood, you find that that pattern no longer exists, which is really interesting. So at the junior level, eight, under 18s, and the 19s, it's very prevalent. But in the ice hockey studies, they found that in fact the players who were born in the second quarter of the year, or third quarter, fourth quarter rather, sorry tend to be the ones who play more minutes, they score more goals, they earn more points for their teams. And so so now you've got a problem that's a, a contradiction because why would it suddenly disappear at a certain age? So I think there's a, a lot more to be discussed about the relative age effect but but certainly the implication for coaches and for us as scientists in terms of policy is that the earlier you make the selection the more you can be confounded and confused by other factors. Biological development is one, relative age is another. And so. It's again, it's an argument to say, let's delay specialization. Let's put back the moment where we actually decide and put children on what we what is effectively a career path. I mean, the world of professional sport now is such that if you don't get onto the right journey or the right bus, as it were, at the age of 12 or 13, it's much more difficult to get on later on. And the earlier we make that decision, the less likely we are to be correct. So we just need to try and delay things a lot more. I think that's the message coming through and that's the certainly scientifically the way to go. It's not always possible in the real world though.
0: And does it mean are you suggesting that the selections should be wider, larger groups of, of athletes that you actually support?
1: Well, in theory, but of course you've got a resource issue because and, and, and I've I've given a few talks now on talent identification and there's a big dispute about what talent ID means because people can't even agree on talent. I was in Qatar just a week ago and that was the big issue. It was such a big sticking point that we barely got to debate how you do talent ID because everyone gets stuck on what does talent mean and and what does that mean for identification. My definition is quite simple and it's not scientific is, is that talent ID is a tactical decision you make to allow you to spend limited resources most effectively. In other words, if I'm tennis in Belgium, or if I'm ice hockey in Canada, or if I'm rugby in my country, South Africa, I've only got a limited amount of money to spend. If I'm a school, I can't afford to coach and manage 200 kids to play. So what I'm trying to do is identify which of these 200 kids are going to make up the best 20, so that I can give my limited coach, my limited fields, my limited time to them. That's what it is. It's a tactical decision to direct resources. And so when we argue that that specialization should be delayed, we, we are doing what is scientifically the best thing to do, but from a resource point of view, and that means money, people, time, energy, it's actually less efficient because now we have to just take up so many more people into the system. And so somewhere there needs to be a balance because the scientific imperative and the tactical, practical imperative are actually in conflict with one another. And so that's a key thing to understand is as much as it's important to delay the specialization, you can't just keep everyone viable for as long as possible. That's a difficult balance to find. Mm.
0: Mm. And you mentioned uh, Qatar, where it's very hot. And I also I read your blog about the, the heat at the Australian Open. Do you think there should be a cut a off temperature where we do not play tennis anymore, or where we do not play soccer anymore? Or could you give us your views on, on exercise in the heat?
1: Yeah. I mean, so earlier this year, the Australian Open was affected. It always is. Uh, I can't remember an Australian Open where the debate doesn't happen. But this year was particularly bad because I think it was it was one of the hottest years on record. I'm sure you would be able to back that up. And so a number of players collapsed and there were a number of matches that were interrupted. Um, it was quite clear that the quality of the tennis in those early rounds was compromised because you would have two players who were in theory evenly matched, and the game would just capitulate to a six-love-six-one kind of one-sided affair. And, and, And some of the players objected, some did not. Now, my take on that is that certainly physiologically, there is an upper limit of temperature beyond which it becomes potentially harmful to play. And at the time, there were people saying, look, humans evolved to run... In order to hunt and they did so in the hottest part of the day and of course this is a well-known theory the endurance runner and human beings and how we're so well adapted to deal with the heat my argument is that that's not really relevant to a tennis match or any particular sport because a we don't live like that anymore and b you're doing something in professional sport that is really entertainment and when it gets to the point where it's a survival of the fittest which is literally what the argument was now about then it compromises what the sport is actually about and it also puts the fans in harm's way because they're not well trained. They don't have the luxury or the desire to spend one month prior to the Australian Open acclimatizing in heat studios and so forth like the players could and many did do. So all of a sudden now you've got these fans that are exposed to this heat and it's uncomfortable for them and the quality of the performance is affected and that consequences the TV productions affected and so just all around it made sense to me that you would have to have some clear policy in place that protects the maybe call it the integrity and the value of the package and the package means the players the performance and the fans and the same debate will be true in the Football World Cup in Qatar because I mean obviously we don't know what's gonna happen there will it be moved will it be shifted later in the year But it's the same problem. There are 60,000 fans who, in theory, even if you air-condition the stadiums, the medical complaints from the fans will far outnumber the medical complaints for the players. And that's that's disastrous. And so you can't avoid those kinds of temperatures. It's just not physiologically possible.
0: Mm -hmm. And another topic that still seems to stir up a lot of debate is whether and how much you need to drink during exercises. What is your take on this?
1: Yeah, so obviously coming from the University of Cape Town, my PhD was supervised by Professor Tim Noakes and I think he's known to most people as one of the main protagonists of this particular debate because there was a time, well I guess in some circles it still exists, but the dangers of dehydration were thought to be absolutely the worst thing in exercise. And so the advice that was given to runners was to drink as much as they could, that any weight loss was damaging and harmful. It seems quite clear now that there's been a shift away from that and I'd like to think that, that the work that he did and, and I was very peripherally involved so I said he wouldn't claim credit but that we did from Cape Town was responsible for that shift. And it's true when you look at the guidelines in 1996 it was no sweat loss. Any, any sweat loss is da- uh, weight loss is, de- is dangerous because it means you're dehydrated. It meant that you had to drink as much as tolerable. Now they've kind of softened that. And it seems quite clear to me that the dangers of dehydration were overstated. And the unintended consequence of that is that people were encouraged to drink too much. And the result was the creation of a completely new disease called hyponatremia, where all of a sudden all these recreational athletes were being given advice from the laboratory, which was in many instances valid for the laboratory, because you might have highly trained athletes running at high intensities with no fan, no wind cooling and for them one and a half two liters an hour was adequate for the guy running a marathon in four and a half hours it's too much and so we had a couple of cases in the 1980s and around the world you started to get people who were dying from drinking too much water and I guess it became again one of those polarized debates it's either dehydration or it's hyponatremia and I think the balance again exists in the middle as it does with most things and the answer was that as long as you have access to fluids and you drink to thirst, your body won't allow you to dehydrate harmfully. If you force yourself to drink, then you can quite easily go in the opposite direction, but just drink to thirst. The body's clever enough to do that.
0: Barefoot running still seems to be very, um, quite hot. Are you an advocate of it?
1: No, I, I'm, I try not to be an advocate of anything because unless I'm absolutely convinced of something then I wouldn't want to advocate for it and and I think history has shown more than once I mean all the time that as soon as you're dogmatic in your opinion something will come up and undermine you slightly so the safest thing to do is to never say yes with 100% certainty with barefoot running I think there's enough reason to suggest again that the dangers of injury as a consequence of not having the right pronation control, cushioning, motion stability devices and so on in the shoe were overstated. From the 1970s onwards, the shoe industry grew because there was an increase in the number of people uh, competing, participating and running, which was a good thing. But that meant a market was suddenly created and, and the shoe companies jumped on it by, I mean, if you look at the pictures of shoes from the 1970s and how they evolved, I mean, it's just incredible, this technology and so forth. But there was no real evidence that it was actually doing anything. But it was certainly sold as if it was. And now we've kind of come full circle and we're saying, actually, maybe all those devices weren't necessary. Let's go back to basics, back to nature, as it were, and run barefoot. I don't think that's necessarily bad, but I wouldn't throw out 30 years' worth of knowledge because the knowledge is not 100% flawed. It's not all corrupt and it's not all tainted. Mm -hmm. So there there was clearly some benefit for some people of running in shoes. And so those individuals, under the kind of messaging that they're now getting are throwing their shoes away. They're running barefoot and they're just basically swapping one injury for another because it seems quite clear that the the biomechanical differences between barefoot running and running in cushioned shoes with motion control are large enough that you're basically a beginner when you run barefoot. Because all of a sudden the muscles of the foot, the tendons in the foot, the bones in the foot, mm-hmm. the calf muscle, the Achilles tendon, we think it's mostly posterior based on what we found so far. They're working so much more than they were when you're running in shoes. And so you're basically a beginner and so now you've got a guy doing call it 50-60k a week and he basically goes back to being a beginner and still does that. Of course he's going to get injured. So the problem was not necessarily the the concept of barefoot running but it was the way that it was implemented. So the message again is just one of caution. If you're in a shoe and you're not injured then why change? It's foolish no matter what some scientist says and the second thing if you're going to change don't underestimate just how big a undertaking you're about to make because it could well take you six months one year before you're back to where you used to be and so that seems to be where it is and so we're doing a, a pretty big study or two on this at the moment and what we're finding is even by the simplified definitions of what increases injury risk so for example the force and the, and the loading rate when you, when you land, that's been linked to the risk of injury. We measure that, for example. We find that half the runners get better and half get worse. So if you, if you give one piece of advice out, you are by definition ignoring or discriminating against half your target market, and that's not good advocacy. So rather, f- let's try and figure out who, who responds, who doesn't, is everyone capable and if they are, then how do they get there? And then just be a little bit more balanced in how we deliver the advice, you know? mm.
0: yeah. And if you, want to, if you want to become the new Usain Bolt, is there one specific gene that you need to have? Or is there one, one gene for all athletes?
1: Well, that's the... So, I mean, gen, genetics of performance is so complex. And, and, and unfortunately, the question you've just asked now about whether there's one gene is, is how the media often interpret. And so you'll pick up an article and saying, for example, scientists discover the speed gene. Well, I can tell you that height, which is a very obvious characteristic, we know that height is inherited. At least 80 percent of height is heritable. Your environment makes some difference to whether you're tall or short, but your parents are your biggest influences genetically. So they do a study to explain height as a consequence of gene variance. And it turns out that it takes just under 300,000 different gene variations to explain half of that. So now that's height. Imagine how much more complex something like performance will be. And that's what we, that's what we see. We see probably hundreds of these different uh, genetic polymorphisms which are probably accounting for height. And so when you are looking at Usain Bolt, what you're seeing is not the consequence of one gene. It's not like, it's not like a light switch that you throw and suddenly there's light. You're looking at probably thousands of different interactions. Combined with how the environment affects the expression of those genes, that's the other problem, which all contribute to that athlete. And so so, so Usain Bolt might be as close to the perfect sprinter as we've seen because of a combination of all these different factors. But those people who are looking for one gene, they're doomed to fail. It's never going to happen.
0: And then if we can't have the gene, is doping going to work? And can, are we going to catch them if they use doping?
1: Uh, yeah, d- doping... Doping is the scourge of sports scientists because like it's one of the few places that our field is is deemed to be relevant and so every year, Tour de France time, Major Championship, Olympic Games or World Champs, there's a debate about doping so it's something that receives a great deal of attention because it's such a pervasive issue. And in the last few years, I really do believe, at the risk of being accused of being naive and a bit of a daydreamer, I do believe that advances have been made. People always say that the dopers are ahead of the testers, and perhaps they are, but I do believe that that gap has been narrowed. And the main thing I think driving that is the biological passport. I think that it is certainly far from perfect, but I think that it is a good enough tool that it is at the very least squeezed back on doping. I don't think it'll ever be eliminated in the same way that you'll ne- never eliminate speeding. No matter how many speed traps and cameras you put on the roads, people will still take chances. But the more you trap them and the more you catch and the harsher the punishment, the less they will be prepared to do it. And and so I think what the passport system has done is it has squeezed back on doping by making it more difficult, therefore more expensive, and the punishment is now more likely to be given out because you'll get caught more. And and when you analyze the performances you see this trend to actually being slower than it used to be in the 1990s and the early 2000s pre-passport the cycling performances were minutes faster than they are today and I think that's encouraging because that's, remember that's despite technology getting better that's, you should think it would get quicker but it's actually gotten slower over the last 10 to 15 years and so there are encouraging signs there not enough to say hey the battle's been won but if it's an arm wrestle then I think we're getting it back towards even now. And the next steps will be how do we use the tool more effectively? How can we improve it? And how can we catch guys less alert and less aware than they were before?
0: Mm. Well, thank you very much. Is there any other topic you would like to cover and share with the audience?
1: Oh, there, there are always hundreds. I mean, for me, sports science is so entertaining and exciting because it's so relevant and I I look at papers in South Africa on a Monday morning and there's five or six pages of sport and every single one of those articles has got some kind of insight that sports science can give. So there's nothing specific but there's always something out there. And I would I would encourage sports scientists and, and clinicians to to really prioritize being relevant because it's very easy to get caught up in these hypothetical conceptual questions but if the real world isn't doing them, then, then we shouldn't be doing them. So that's got to be the primary driver. And if you can do that, then, then you really start to make an impact, whether it's on health or performance. So that would be my main thing to encourage people with.
0: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.